0: You know, through the years, I have had the opportunity to be with people in some of the happiest moments of their lives and some of the saddest moments of their lives. I have been there, standing at the front of uh, of the room when, with a nervous. A young man standing to my left when the most beautiful woman in the world would walk down the aisle and to just uh, see the smile on his face, to watch his knees uh, knock together, to uh, see him hyperventilate at times, um, even to see some tears uh, well up in his eyes. Uh, It is, uh, there's just such a privilege to uh, be part of, a, of such a special moment when uh, a man and a woman come together like that uh, to be married. It's just a it's a delight. And I also have uh, many times uh, stood beside a hole in the ground where a loved one is uh, there in a box and is soon to be lowered into that ground and some dirt will be shoveled on top of that box and people will cry and people will say goodbye. And it is an incredibly um, difficult time. It's an incredibly sad time, even for believers who have the hope of resurrection. There is still the, the, uh, the loss, the pain, this, the this searing heartache that comes when death stalks a family. So there are big highs and there are big lows. Solomon tells us that it's really good to be at a funeral. In fact, he tells us it's better to be at a funeral than it is to be at a feast. It's better to go to a, to a place of mourning than a house of feasting. It's better to, to come to the funeral than a wedding. And at first, we would... Uh, we would have to pause and, and sort of think about that, but he provides that answer for us. He says that's the end of everyone as a way of kind of fixing our attention on reality. This life is passing, and we will all uh, meet our maker. But typically, when a, uh, we do a funeral service or a memorial service, we would uh, have a time of remembrances, where we would take a, a few minutes or so and, and we would kind of summarize a person's life. We would talk about that person, uh, maybe formally in a written obituary that would be read and provided. And, and certainly in uh, many other times when individuals, family members or friends would, would stand and, and share a memory or two uh, to just help us as we uh, come to know this person that we're saying a goodbye to. It's, it's common and I think it's helpful. But it it leads to a question, I think, and and the question this morning is, how do you want to be remembered? If, If it was your memorial service, if it was your funeral service, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want people to remember you? It's a good question to ask. Because we are in the process of building those memories each and every day. We are in the process of constructing a legacy. Open your Bibles, if you're not already, to Matthew uh, chapter 26. We are looking at verses 1 through 16 together this morning, and we began it last week, returning to it again this week, and uh, Lord willing, the following week as well, in order to work our way through this. This is a particularly difficult section, I think, of Matthew's gospel because it deals with the betrayal of Christ by Judas and just the, the um, wickedness of all of that, the, the unexpected nature of all of that, at least from a human point of view, and the, and the pain involved in, in contemplating one who is so close and yet could uh, lift their heel, as it were, as the scriptures say, against Christ. So in this uh, dark and devilish drama that plays out here in in verses 1 through 16, we said last week there are three movements that we wanted to take the time to observe, three movements in the dark and devilish drama whereby the light of the world is betrayed into the hands of wicked men. We looked last week at the first movement in that drama in verses 1 through 5, we called it. Israel's diabolical plot. Israel's diabolical plot. I'll just read this and make a couple of comments as to kind of get us moving into the second of the three movements. When Jesus had finished all these words, that is the Olivet Discourse, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So, the scene being the uh, leadership of the nation, the the, uh, Sanhedrin here, the chief priests and the elders of the people, the, the 70, the leadership of the nation presided over by the president of the Sanhedrin, the high priest Caiaphas, have gathered together and are seeking, as it says, by stealth, by underhanded, by conniving means, to seize the Messiah and to slay him. But they are prevented, as they acknowledge here, from enacting their diabolical plot by Jesus' popularity among the crowds. Jesus is presently at this moment, and and this event is uh, chronologically is taking place a likely Tuesday afternoon late Tuesday afternoon at this time and and they want to seize him, but, but he has been wildly popular for the last two days, and so the the crowds that have gathered in the city are preventing them from carrying out their diabolical plot now just a, a bit of a background. Uh, maybe cement this even further in your mind. A Passover season is a unique time, you know, was a unique time in the, in the history of the nation of Israel. It was that they were called together for this feast. It was one of the three mandatory feasts that the people would come really from, uh, uh, certainly from uh, Israel and Galilee, but even from other parts of the world. They would, be, they would come, if they could, to celebrate the Passover and the attended feasts that accompanied it. And so the population of Jerusalem would swell dramatically at this time of year. And the atmosphere, and particularly in this place in history, was, was explosive, the historians tell us. That is, the, the coming together of the Jewish people uh, brought about kind of a nationalistic zeal and passion that was palatable, that could be felt, that was electrifying there in the city. And so when the, when the leadership of the nation here says uh, that a riot might occur among the people, this is not just an idle thought. The reality is there. It is like a powder keg. And uh, uh, anyone to strike a match and the city would explode. And so it was a very dangerous kind of time. The, the size of it, just to, to get an idea of it, uh, Josephus uh, reports to us, that uh, sometime later, several decades later, the, uh, the governor, uh, the following pilot, the governor of, uh, of uh, Palestine, was, of Judea, was, uh, was uh, speaking to Nero, the emperor, and trying to explain to him why this was a particularly dangerous time of year and that the Romans needed to be careful how they proceeded with their management of the city of Jerusalem at this time of year in particular. And Nero was having trouble understanding that and and, uh, was having trouble understanding the massive population swell that would occur. Because the the regular population of the city of Jerusalem at this time uh, in the history of the nation was not massive. Uh, Some sources say maybe 80,000 people would be permanent residents. But uh, at this time, the the governor of uh, Judea here asked the high priest to go ahead and make a census and to count the number of Passover lambs that will be slaughtered that year. And so that's what happens. And again, Josephus reports that according to the count that was provided, uh, 256,500 lambs were slaughtered at that particular Passover season. Now, uh, by Jewish standards, not less than 10 people would uh, be required to eat a Passover lamb. So you can begin to do some fast math, and, and Josephus does it for us, and estimates that the population would swell to, to two and three-quarter million people at the time of the Passover. So we're talking about a city the size of Upland that now swell. when I say size, I'm talking population, not, uh, not square footage, now, Jerusalem was much smaller at that time. Would swell in a way that you know is almost defies imagination as the people would come in. So you can understand the compact nature, the the uh, the nationalistic uh, fervor that would be gathered there. This is a dangerous situation, and so the the leadership of the nation knows that uh, they desperately want to kill Christ, but they are refrained, uh, restrained because of the popularity and the possibility of a riot. And so, of course, uh, this is where uh, Judas enters in, in the sovereign plan of God. But that's Israel's diabolical plot. So this morning what I want to look, though, is the next movement in the drama here, and and I've entitled it Jesus' Stinging Rebuke. Jesus' Stinging Rebuke. And it's 6 through 13, and as I developed it, uh, I think you can see why I've entitled it that. Now, uh, this, uh, this section, 6 through 13, let me just go ahead and read it for you. and I want to make some comments. to set it up. Uh, now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of a very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her, verse 14, then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went out to the chief priests, etc. This event, captured here in verses 6 through 13, occurs also in Mark's gospel, in Mark 14, and it is also... Uh, narrated, uh, recounted, recounted to us by John in John's gospel, John chapter 12. So it appears in three of the four gospels. Interestingly, not in Luke's gospel, but it definitely is there in Matthew and Mark, and it appears in John. And uh, what, what I'd like to do is, uh, is take you to John 12. We'll, we'll read that because I want to bring it alongside. It adds a lot of important detail that I think that really helps to explain and understand what's going on here. So in John 12, and we'll just read the first three verses uh, initially. It says in John 12, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, I said to you last week that um, Matthew arranges his gospel thematically, not chronologically, the way you and I typically approach things. You know, it was this and then this and then this and then this. Matthew does have chronological sections, to be sure, but he is not opposed to moving some things things around chronologically to drive forward his his emphasis, his point, in writing the gospel. This is one of those sections. Verses 6 through 13 is actually a flashback. That is, that it is chronologically out of order. There on Tuesday afternoon, while the, the Sanhedrin is gathered in the, in the court of the high priest Caiaphas, plotting to try to kill the Messiah, uh, the events that are narrated in 6 through 13 are not happening. They actually happened, and here we, we're, we're very indebted to John's gospel, who gives us a historical chronology and says it's six days before the Passover when this actually happened. That would have been Saturday night. Saturday night before Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into the city, right? And, and uh, to the acclaim of, of uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and, and so forth. So this event actually reflects back to Saturday night. That's when this occurs. Both Matthew and Mark take it out of order, and they do it for a couple of reasons, they do it because thematically it sets up a contrast, and the contrast is between the, the incredible loving devotion of this woman to the Messiah with the diabolical plotting of the leadership of the nation and with the, with the incredibly uh, wicked betrayal that is going to come later on Tuesday, actually into Tuesday evening. And so verse 14 in uh, Matthew 26, then one of the 12 goes, not then after the, uh, the events here of 6 through 13, but actually the then after the following of the Olivet Discourse. So it's, it's late Tuesday afternoon, early Tuesday evening, when Judas goes to the Sanhedrin who are meeting together and saying, you know, we want to kill him, but we're not sure. We can't do it now. And then Judas arrives and provides the solution for them. Okay, so chronologically, this is a flashback. Now, um, it's interesting here in this, uh, this flashback, just a, a few things to observe as we get started. Notice in verse 6 that it occurs in Bethany. So that is about two miles uh, outside the environs of the city of Jerusalem. It is to the east of the city, up and over the Mount of Olivet, and it's on, uh, Olivet. It's on the backside of the Mount of Olivet. There in Bethany, that's where Jesus has been staying. That's where he retreats to every single evening in order to, to come under the hospitality and protection of Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary. That's where he's living. And... So this Saturday night, the Saturday night before the uh, uh, Palm Sunday, they are there, and there's a a feast, there's a banquet. And notice verse 6, it's in the home of Simon the leper. Now, that is not his last name. Okay? It is, hi, I'd like to introduce myself. I am Simon the leper. Okay? The leper is obviously... Uh, A name that sort of attached to him. Why? Because he had been afflicted with, yes, you guessed it, leprosy. He had been afflicted with leprosy. Now, it would not be his present condition. It would not be his present condition because if it were his present condition, then Jesus and his disciples would be defiled by contact with him and thus unable to eat the Passover. Okay, so it's Simon who used to be a leper would probably be a better way to say his name. Simon who used to be, pardon me, a leper. My conclusion, can't prove it, just convinced of it. My, uh, my conclusion in all of this, my conviction in all of this is that Simon who used to be a leper is no longer a leper because of who? Yeah, the one who could consume leprosy with a touch. Whose holiness was so great, he could not be defiled. He would consume it like light drives out darkness. Like light consumes darkness. So I believe Jesus had healed Simon. Therefore, there is a feast, a banquet. And this is, a, I think, a thank you banquet. It is a banquet uh, hosted in the home of Simon. And a part of the purpose of this is to thank Jesus. Beyond that, according to John two and maybe it's or John twelve rather, in, in verse two, it's probably a good idea to keep maybe a finger or something so we can get back and forth. But notice in, there that in uh, in John chapter twelve verses one and two that Lazarus is there, and notice it's the Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead, and notice that the feast is prepared, and there's Martha serving and Lazarus reclining at the table and Mary, so they're all there. Now, it was only a matter of a few weeks prior to this that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So, uh, conclusion, my conclusion in all of this is the feast happens to be held in Simon's home, but but the, the host of the feast is really Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And why? Well, because I think they are profoundly moved in gratitude for Jesus who has raised Lazarus from the dead. So you have Simon who is grateful. You have, you have Lazarus and Mary and Martha who are grateful. And so together they combine and they have a feast to, to uh, thank and celebrate and honor the Messiah. Again, uh, in John 12, we notice the, uh, the typical positions there. We've got Lazarus reclining at the feast. We've got Martha as, as uh, serving the, the, uh, the food and involved in the details of preparation. And then we have Mary of course, who uh, cannot get away from Jesus. She is is at his feet again. She is at his feet again. So, verse 7, Matthew 26. And I want you to notice here, by the way, that in Matthew's gospel, I'll say this now, and I'll probably repeat it, but in Matthew's gospel and Mark's account in Luke, um, Matthew uh, 14, the woman is never named. She remains nameless. It is John who tells us who the woman is and applies the name Mary to her. So, a woman, Mary, we know from John's Gospel, came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume and poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, alabaster uh, is a soft limestone material. It can be white or kind of a pale yellow. It was was mined in a a particular area of Egypt. And in antiquity, it was very valuable and it was was shaped and, and sculptured to create vessels for holding very valuable things, in this case, perfume. It would have been sculpted into a, into a vessel that would be shaped somewhat like a closed rosebud with a long and slender neck on the top of it. And the purpose of that slender neck was to um, prevent air from getting down in and just hold down the evaporation of the expensive liquid that would be contained inside this, this alabaster vial. And notice it's a very costly perfume, it says. That's how Matthew describes it, a very costly perfume. We are indebted to Mark 14, verse 3, to John 12, and verse 3, to know that it was nard. It was nard, also known as nard. Okay, that was what it is. What is nard? Nard is, a, is an aromatic, kind of an amber-colored oil, and it is derived by... by uh, crushing and distilling the, the liquid that comes from the root of a particular plant that only grows in the Himalayas of Nepal, China, and India at a beginning altitude of 9,800 feet. So you do not go into your backyard, of course, unless you live at 10,000 feet, and uh, and find this plant. Okay, So it's a very uh, controlled, narrow place where the particular plant grows, uh, one must have access to it. One must dig them up. One must uh, crush the root balls and, and distill down the liquid. And eventually, what you arrive with is this very aromatic and very thick and viscous uh, fluid that is extremely expensive and was, in the, in the ancient world, a highly desirable perfume. Okay, So, spikenard. Now, because it, it was so thick, so viscous, it would, out of this narrow, slender-necked uh, vial, you know, it would be very slow to pour out and you wouldn't, you know, you don't splash it on yourself. It's not, uh, not ax body, you know, <laughs> stuff. Uh, it's, uh, you know, just a little bit here or there does a lot. And uh, But because it doesn't pour out easily, uh, Mary, in this, this extravagant love... Uh, towards Jesus, she just takes it and she just snaps the neck off the thing, and, and is pouring it out. Okay, it's way too slow to let it uh, you know drop and drop. She just boom, she snaps it in half, and she's you know maybe even shaking it, you know like a ketchup bottle. She's trying to get it out, and um, we're told here in Matthew's gospel that she pours it on Jesus' head. John tells us that she uh, she poured it on his feet. And wiped his feet with her hair. So which was it? His head or his feet? Answer, yes. Right? Yes. It was his head and his feet. Why? Well, because Jesus was there reclining at the feast. In those days, the feast was held to be a small U-shaped table, you know, not very high above the ground. And it was called a triclinium. And and the the guests at a feast would recline on a pillow on their left side, be able to reach with their right hand, Because it was a horseshoe shape, the servants could come in and out and replace the food. And so you'd be lying there. And so she comes in and she's able to to anoint both his head and his feet. Okay, So it's not like she's crawling around under the dining room table, you know, trying to pour this stuff on his feet. It's very natural, very easy, um, but it's very much out of character for 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 an aristocratic woman who, you know, knows what Emily Post would do in a situation like this. What are the, what are the proper um, cultural, social things to do? And this is not it. Okay? You, don't, you don't anoint their feet that way, and you certainly don't wipe them with your hair. Okay? But this is what she does. Verse 8, notice how the disciples respond to this extravagant love. They are indignant when they saw this. They are indignant, strong term, okay? They are indignant when they saw this, and they said, why this waste? Why this waste? Uh, 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 The the Greek word here, translated waste, it could be translated dead loss. Okay, Why this dead loss? So they consider what she has done to be foolish, perhaps even sinful maybe. but certainly driven by sentimentality. And overall, their conclusion is that what she has just done is a complete waste, a dead loss, a dead loss. So she, has, she has wasted this very costly perfume, and, and they express it to her, in, uh, no doubt, In, in uh, as we'll get to it, I think in murmurings, not outwardly, that would be way too direct and a uh, shame culture to say that right to their face. So it's likely in murmurings one to another. It's probably in body language and things like that. But, but in any event, their response to her wounds Mary deeply. It wounds her deeply. They do not understand. They do not appreciate. They do not approve of her extravagant love. In fact, if you just look ahead to verse 10 where Jesus uh, says, um, aware of this, he said to them, Why do you bother the woman? A very strong expression uh, comes from the verb uh, a copto. It means to beat or to strike or to cut. Why do you beat her? Why do you strike her? Why do you cut her? Okay, so is, the idea is, is that their response, their disapproval of this, their indignancy at all of this, has wounded Mary deeply. Wounded Mary very, very deeply. They go on, these practical men, and they say, verse 9, for this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. We're indebted to, uh, to Mark 14 and 5 to know that the high price is over 300 denarii. This perfume could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. That is a year's wages for a common laboring man. This perfume, why did you waste this? This is a year's salary. A year's salary. And we can, we can kind of get an idea of what all this means if, if you just reflect back on John 6, when uh, Jesus is going to feed the 5,000, you remember? And, uh, and he, uh, Philip comes to him and says, uh, you've got to send them away. They're hungry. They've got to be fed. He says, yeah, you feed them. And he says, uh, or excuse me, 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to feed this crowd. And, uh, and then Jesus, of course, knowing all that he's going to do. But you just get a little idea. 200 denarii, yeah, maybe it wouldn't have fed the 5,000 because there's probably actually 20,000 there when you include the, the women and the children and so forth. But, but you get a relative idea of value. This, this uh, vial of perfume would have been sufficient to feed not just one or two poor people. This would have been enough to feed thousands of poor people, thousands of poor people. And so they respond like this. Now, again, you've got to think about what's going on. The, the crowds have come in to the Jerusalem and its environs uh, to celebrate the Passover. Listen, the city is not big enough for everybody. So they are living in, in and around uh, on the hills surrounding the city in tents, temporary shelters. They're, they are packed in, and the poor, uh, no doubt, are, are also there among this great crowd. And so Jesus is, or excuse me, the disciples are saying that. To Mary, they're saying, "Listen, you just wasted a golden opportunity to alleviate uh, at least some um, temporary suffering of, a, of many thousands of your fellow countrymen." And on the surface, it kind of sounds compelling, doesn't it? And I mean, after all, the, the care of the poor is is, is deeply woven in, into the Jewish ethic. I mean, it's there in the Old Testament very, very clearly. Beyond that, Jesus Himself, just a you know an hour before excuse me, uh, not an hour before, but, but several days, uh, no, I've got that all wrong. Jesus himself, several days later, I've got to get my chronology right, uh, will do the Olivet Discourse, right, this is Saturday night, so Tuesday he'll uh, do the Olivet Discourse, and he'll talk about in chapter 25 how uh, those who, who care for the poor and visit the sick and the imprisoned and so forth are the ones who demonstrate what it means to be righteous, And so there is this definite reality here in Jesus' own teaching, Jesus' own example, and so forth. And so the the disciples are are just horrified with the extravagant love of Mary. So what's the motive? I mean, there are motives going on, right? There are motives going on here, and I I want to look at these motives with you. What I want to suggest to you is there are mixed motives, as this story is unwinding, there are mixed motives going on here. I want you to see them. Okay. Verse 10 Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? She has done a good deed to me. As I said, I, I, I think the complaints were more murmured than they were openly voiced. But Jesus is aware of this, and how? I don't know. Maybe supernaturally, maybe not. But in either case, he is aware of what's going on. And uh, he, rather than, uh, than joining in and criticizing Mary, he, he comes to her defense. He defends her. And he rebukes his disciples, sharply rebukes his disciples here. And he says to them that what she has done, as it is translated here in verse 10 in the NASB, is a good deed. I think it's the ESV says it a, calls it a beautiful deed. A very legitimate uh, translation as well. So she has done something good. She has done something beautiful. What? What beautiful thing has she done? Well, Jesus tells us, right? She uh, anointed my body to prepare me for burial. Verse 12. She has anointed my body to prepare me for burial burial. That's the beautiful thing that she has done. Verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Now, some people are confused as to what Jesus is saying here. Is Jesus saying that uh, that we don't need to care for the poor? No, that's not what he's saying at all. Jesus is, is making a contrast here. This event is, a, is, a, is a, a time-bound event. It can only occur basically at this time in history, never to occur again. So we need to be careful as we go through it that we're not extracting from it something that is, you know, is historically time-bound. Now let's just kind of unpack it a little bit. I think when Jesus says here that you'll always have the poor with you, he's not speaking this in some sort of hard-hearted kind of way. He's actually reflecting upon the Mosaic Covenant and the promises of the Mosaic Covenant as recorded in Deuteronomy 15 and verses 4 and 5. I don't have time to take you there. You can mark it down, check it on your own. But there, what God says to the nation is, is if, if you will walk in my covenant, if you will live in obedience to my law, I will eliminate poverty from your land. There will be no poor among you. It is the blessing of the covenant. Well, of course, what do we know about the history of the nation of Israel? They seldom walked faithfully in the Mosaic covenant, and they are certainly not walking faithfully in the Mosaic covenant now. And so the hard reality of that is that there, is, there are poor people in the land and there will continue to be poor people because the, the, the covenant blessings are not available to them because they are walking in disobedience. So Jesus is stating a reality. He's stating a reality here. And then he is going to the next uh, place here and he is saying, you do not always have me. So he's saying, I am only going to be here In a way that you can anoint me for a very short time. For a very short time. So your opportunity, her opportunity to do this is time bound. It's a short window. And she has seized it. And she has seized it. Now, let's um, let's bore down even a little deeper here into motives. What's going on with the 11? What is it with these guys? Why are they, you know, really harassing poor Mary? Well, the answer is we're not exactly sure. I mean we can't say definitively. One of the things we can say is that, there's, that these guys don't see well. They have uh, spiritual cataracts. Because Jesus has said over and over again, you, you see it back in verse two. Um, You know, after two days the Passover is coming, the Son of Man is to be handed over to be crucified. Well, yeah, they know it because they've been told it, but no, they don't know it because they can't receive it. They won't receive it. So they're blind, uh, willfully blind at this point in time to these realities. So her anointing of him is outside of their paradigm. They can't think that way. But But I think there's more to it than that. I think it's not just that they, they can't think that way because they're spiritually blind, which in and of itself would be sufficient to, to criticize them and rebuke them. But I think it goes beyond that. I, I suspect that there's some arrogance going on here. I, I suspect that, uh, you know, hey, we're, we're the ones that are going to be sitting on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and what are you here for? You keep showing up. And, uh, and now you're kind of upstaging us all with this whole perfume thing. So I suspect that there is some uh, not-too-happiness with Mary and what she's doing, uh, kind of horning in on a man's feast. Okay, I can't prove it, but I'm just kind of getting that sense of, uh, of that what's going on there. So. So they are not happy with her, and they, and they respond to her in a, in a very, very strong way, right? I mean, they are, they are uh, Jesus says, hey, you are, you are cutting her. You are, you are beating her with your, with your criticisms here. So they are responding very, very poorly. Interestingly, when you turn back to John 12, and so I'm going to turn you back there so we can finish the rest of that account, what you find there is, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. And we are so thankful for John. So there, back in uh, chapter 12 of John's gospel, beginning in verse 4, what we see is something very interesting. Remember, the disciples are the ones who are are really, you know, criticizing her in this way. But, verse 4... Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, "Why was this perfume not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor people? Ordinarily, Peter is the is the spokesman, the mouthpiece for the for the uh, the disciples, right? The the, uh, the apostolic band It's always Peter's, the one front guy, you know, foot deep in his mouth saying things. Here, it's interestingly, it's Judas." Judas is the one leading the charge. Judas is the one who is who is uh, hammering this poor woman Mary. It is Judas who is who is kind of um, enlisted the rest of the disciples with him, and he is giving expression to everything they thought, and I think much more. Verse six. Now Judas said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. We could grant that the, the, that the eleven are, are beating on poor, poor Mary because of misunderstandings, because maybe of some, some just sort of uh, male arrogance, or you know, any of those kind of things you want to load in there. But when we get to Judas we are in a whole new ballpark. A whole new ballpark. Judas is, is not in any way concerned about the poor. He has no concern about the poor at all. His motivation in, in criticizing Mary, in, in, in figuratively beating Mary, is because he wanted it sold... For the 300 denarii and the money put in the community fund, the community chest, so that he could embezzle it. Judas was the treasurer. And Judas was a thief. Judas was a thief. He has been stealing from them, John tells us, for quite some time. Perhaps he thought this is the chance for the big score. Maybe this is the the opportunity to really, you know, get my retirement. I don't know. We're going to deal with Judas next week. But Judas, definitely, there is no purity in his motive at all. It is all about his own self-aggrandizement. Jesus' rebuke, beloved, goes first to Judas. According to John, when Jesus rebukes the disciples, he is looking Judas in the eyeball, and he is rebuking him. And it's a and it's a it's a serious rebuke. I think that it is that rebuke and the anger that uh, uh, wells up in Judas as a result of that that pushes Judas over the edge to go to the Sanhedrin. And I think that. That back in Matthew 26, so turn back there. Contextually, I think that's exactly what Matthew and, and if you look at Mark's gospel, the same thing. They are indicating to you. They are indicating that to you. That it is because of the rebuke that immediately, uh, or not immediately following that, but, but from that point, and again, we'll develop it more next week, Judas is beginning to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus. He finds the opportunity on Tuesday night. Now, Mary, right? We've got the disciples, we've got Judas, we've got Mary. Uh, what, what's, what's moving Mary? What are her motives? Well, I think clearly it's love and it's devotion. She, she is absolutely in love with the Savior. And she is absolutely devoted to the Savior. Now, I don't think that she uh, is operating at this, this much elevated spiritual plane compared to the, the dullard's. Uh, you know, of the men disciples, and she knows exactly, hey, he's going to be crucified in just a couple days, and he's going to be buried, and he's going to rise on the third day, and uh, he's going to send the Spirit, and we're going to have life everlasting, and the church is going to be born, and, you know, all of that. I don't think she, she's got all that. I think it's simpler than that. I, I think that what is moving her is not the preparation of his body for burial. I think what is moving her is the motivation of the love The gratitude and the commitment to him as the Messiah of Israel. And believe me, these things are very commendable. She is a very commendable woman. Very commendable woman. She loves Jesus. Her gratitude for Jesus. And, hey, he raised her brother from the dead. Her commitment to to Jesus. We find her in the other places in Luke 10. Right at the feet of Jesus listening. She is committed to him. She is convinced he is the Messiah of Israel. Why did she anoint him? I think it's probably a combination of gratitude. I think maybe it's it's an anointing for a king. Certainly um, perfume was used in that way in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 9, 6 speak about the anointing of the king. So maybe some of that's going on in her mind. But what I don't think she is consciously uh, recognizing and doing is saying, okay, I'm going to anoint his body for burial. Jesus says that. Jesus says that, meaning I think she acts better than she knows. She acts out of devotion, out of love, but, she, but she's acting better than she knows. And it's Jesus who says, what she has done is a beautiful thing because she has anointed my body for burial. Listen, bodies are anointed after they're dead, not before. I mean, just think about it. After Jesus died, who goes and anoints the body? Is Joseph of Arimathea. It's Nicodemus, Right. Why? Because you anoint the body after it's dead so, so that it, it uh, holds off the bad smells of decay. But she does it while he's alive. And it's Jesus who says this perfume act is actually an anointing me in, in, uh, in preparation of my burial. So I think she acts better than she knows. I think sometimes we act better than we know. I think when we act in, in love and devotion to the Savior, uh, there, are, there are times that we act better than we know. And, and because we act better than we know, we may never see the outcomes of those things. Here we can see the outcome because Jesus interprets the act for us and tells us what it is. Okay? But I think in, in, in our love and devotion and commitment to the Savior, I, I think, too, I think we can act better than we know. What an encouragement. Notice how this account is closed out here in a final memory in verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. That's astounding. Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, That immediately presupposes a future worldwide evangelistic effort, doesn't it? It's a a glimpse and a glimmer for what's going to come, you know, later in Matthew 28, right? Go into all the world and make what? Disciples. Teaching them, you know, baptizing them in the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. Wherever this gospel goes in the whole world, it's going outside of Israel. It's going to go beyond Israel. Why is it going to go beyond Israel? Because Israel has been temporarily set aside. What is this gospel? I think within the context, we have to, we have to stay within the context. So I don't think it's the gospel as, as the apostle Paul develops it for us in the book of Romans. I think the gospel being spoken of here is the, is the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that he did and taught as recorded in Matthew and Mark. I think that's what the gospel he's talking about here is. Wherever the story that is, is recorded for us here in Matthew, wherever the story is recorded in Mark, wherever it goes throughout the whole world, people will know of what this woman has done and they will remember. They will remember. Now, if we had to rely on Matthew and we had to rely on Mark as it comes down to us in written form, we wouldn't know who it is, would we? But we get John's gospel. Now, here's the cool thing. John's gospel is written 60 years later. 60 years later. And I want you to see how 60 years after the event... John assumes his readers are familiar with this event, and not just familiar with this event, but they know the name of the unnamed woman in this event. What that says is that is that Matthew and Mark, as they went out and and, and preached the gospel is they shared about Jesus and made disciples and then those disciples made disciples and so forth, that the story does go out in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy here and along the way they identify who the woman is. So what I want you to do is I want you to quickly look at uh, John chapter 11 and I want you to see this. This talks, you know, this kind of hints at... Um, how did the, the, the gospel spread before it was reduced to writing? Matthew's gospel, I think, best case, uh 80, 50 Fifteen years after death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So there was preaching going on until Matthew finally writes it all down. I think he finally writes it all down in the inspiration of the Spirit because he has come to realize that, listen, I can't be everywhere I need to be. And secondly, I, I'm going to probably lose my head here at some point. And, and we got to keep this thing alive. So he reduces it to writing. But I want you to see here in John 11. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Isn't that interesting? Bethany, earlier he calls it uh, the Bethany, um, uh, not the Bethany beyond the Jordan, but the other Bethany. What Bethany? The Bethany that is the village of Mary. That's not bad. That's not bad to get a whole village named after you. Okay? The village of Mary. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Well, wait a minute. It's chapter 12 before you tell me that story. You're going to narrate it in John. John, you narrate it in your gospel in chapter 12, not 11. But here in chapter 11, you presuppose me as the reader, the hearer, that I already know the story. How? The answer has to be, wherever Matthew and Mark's gospel went, so went this story. So went this story. So lavish was her love. So full was her commitment. So deep was her gratitude. That that her behaviors were commendable to the place where they went everywhere. So people could hear. So people could could be encouraged, so people could be exhorted. To love, to commit, to to, to worship, as she did. You know what else is really interesting? This is the last mention of Mary in the New Testament. She's gone. Mark and uh, Matthew, Mark's gospel, written gospel, she doesn't even get her name in it. Luke 10 is the only other place she appears. She gets her name there. You know, it's Mary, Martha, so forth, there. But throughout the world, she's known. Throughout the world, the story is told and retold. And this this woman just passes off the scene, out of the pages of the Scripture. She comes, she goes, and, and really her life is, is sort of in two, you know, vignettes, two samples. But what a life. What a life. The final memory of her before she, she passes into the, you know, the, the human history is, is that this woman is a committed, passionate follower of Jesus Christ. So, question. We know how she's remembered. How do you want to be remembered? If they were to write the story of your life, what would they write? What would they record? How would it be summarized? I don't I don't say that to beat on anyone. It's not about making us you know feel like this small and you know slither all out under the door. I'm not saying that. I'm I'm just saying this lady is obscure in some ways, very obscure. Her event is, is witnessed only by a few at a dinner party. Actually both are witnessed only by a few at a dinner party. And yet, she acts better than she knows, and, 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 and God just gives witness to her life as an inspiration for all. Some time ago, in, in um, just reading through the book of Acts, I, I came across a verse in uh, Acts 13 and verse 36. And... Um, You know, I ask myself the question how do I want to be remembered? This is, beloved, this is how I'd like to be remembered. I'd like to be remembered in in the words of the Apostle Paul, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. I told Carol, I I said, uh, someday when if I precede you in death, put that on my gravestone. That's what I that's how I'd like my life to be remembered. I served God in my generation and then fell asleep. Not my great accomplishments. I don't have any anyway. But just the life of a person committed to Christ. That's Mary. That's Mary. And that's us. That's us. May God apply the truth of his word where it is helpful and needed. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the depth of it. Thank you for the richness, the texture. Thank you that your spirit makes it come alive in our hearts and minds. And, and even in the moment here, you are at work applying these truths to us. But Father, we confess that we do not act in accord with our best desires and intentions oh so frequently. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God that our sin is forgiven, that we are We are united in the beloved. We are your adopted sons. And that your love for us never varies, never increases, never diminishes. May that motivate us. Is it motivated Mary? Do your good work in us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name.